Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Today's episode is sponsored by the Feminist Coffee Hour, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Do you enjoy sitting down with a hot cup of coffee for thoughtful discussions about politics and social topics from a feminist perspective? Would you indulge us the occasional foray into pop culture or a tangent on the finer points of policy, history, or psychology? Then join us on the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast for interviews with cool women and an occasional man who tell us about their fascinating activism, research, or creative projects. From academic critiques of neoliberalism to fictional characters' rankings as feminist romantic partners to forever discussing bad takes on sex bots, hear about it on Feminist Coffee Hour. FeministCoffeeHour.com Ashley Bendixson is a survivor of domestic violence and sexual assault who has transformed her experience to become a vocal advocate, activist, and public speaker on issues related to ending gender-based violence. Her work centers on reaching youth and helping empower them to engage in self-discovery and to end abuse. Ashley also uses her experience to engage advocacy groups, first responders, and other professional audiences on how to help victims transition from survive to thrive. Welcome, Ashley. Oh, thank you so much. Um, it's my pleasure to be here. So you have been speaking for quite a while already about your experience as a domestic violence and a sexual assault survivor. And I I know that this is something that has probably been shared very widely. But for our listeners who aren't familiar with your personal journey, I was hoping that we could start with your experience when you were 20 years old, when you were in college and that relationship Sure. So actually, um, if we could, I'd love to just go back a little bit earlier because I actually experienced um, my first incident of abuse. I was sexually assaulted when I was 14 years old. It was my first boyfriend. I innocently went into this relationship, trusting him, being excited about that first date and the prospect of doing something as sweet as holding hands or even having my first kiss. And unfortunately, that first date went terribly wrong, and I was forced to do many things I did not want to do. And he um, subjected me to repeated sexual abuse over the course of an entire year. So that's kind of where I've always felt um, my whole story began, because at a very young age, I was introduced to love and dating in a very unhealthy way. And I never really learned how to have a voice or how to be self-aware. And so years later, when I was in college, um, I thought that I was more knowledgeable and I thought I knew what to look out for now because of my past. But I ended up going for someone that seemed perfect and too good to be true. And that's when I found myself living as a a victim of domestic violence for, for two years So it kind of started when I was younger. So can you talk more about that first boyfriend when you were 14? Was that in high school or were you still in middle school? It was. It was my my freshman year. So my first year entering high school. And it was a really exciting time because in, in middle school, I was actually like bullied pretty badly. I was kind of awkward. I wore a lot of hand-me-down clothes. So, you know, I had crushes on boys in middle school, like most middle school girls do, and nobody ever showed any interest in me. So I can remember being even more excited when I went into high school and I started to draw the attention of of some of my male classmates. And so I was just very um, excited and and just innocently um, interested in the prospect of someone having an interest in me. And, you know, it was back then, this was before cell phones. And so we had a very um, casual phone relationship where he'd call my parents' house and, you know, we'd lay in our beds and talk on the phone for hours and I wasn't allowed to date yet. So we kind of built up this nice little relationship through the phone and in passing at school. And um, I really felt like I trusted him. I I felt like I knew him. You know, I I thought it was real love back then, and I there were never any signs that he might uh, mistreat me 
once we actually started hanging out more closely in person. So are you saying that your parents were unaware of your relationship once it started? They were. I mean, they they knew that I was uh, talking to a boy at school and they were okay with me uh, speaking with him on the phone, but they definitely did not want me um, dating anyone or spending time alone with anyone. Um, so by the time we actually did see each other face to face, we had to, you know, come up with these little white lies. I said I was going to a best friend's house and that, that's really how I was able to um, spend time with him. Uh, in person and not in my bedroom on my phone. When your first boyfriend engaged in the, was it one or multiple acts of sexual assault? Was that something that you shared with anyone? Did you tell your parents or friends? I did did not. Um, the only person that knew what I had experienced was uh, my best friend at the time, and even she really didn't know the full extent of what I was going through. I think for me, because dating was unfamiliar to me and I had never learned about it, my parents had never talked to me about dating, um, you know, that first encounter with him, he, we basically spent, we, we spent time together on this date. And before I knew it, he was saying things like, you know, what's your problem? Isn't this what you've wanted? I thought this is what we've been talking about. Haven't we been talking about being together, being close to each other? So I almost felt like maybe I just didn't know um, what dating was. And maybe this was normal to do these types of things on a first date. And, you know, maybe I did lead him on because we were excited about spending time together in person. But obviously that meant two different things to, to both of us. So I really doubted um, myself and I wasn't sure if I somehow had caused this or led this on. And at the same time, because I'd never spoken to my parents or really any adults about such personal things, I was embarrassed. And so I didn't feel like I could talk to them about what I'd went through, not to mention the fact that I'd have to tell them that I broke a rule and I snuck out and saw a boy. I was almost more afraid of getting in trouble. But also to talk about something sexual when you're 14 years old, it's just, uh, it's a yucky and uncomfortable subject matter, you know, for a young girl. And so I just kept it to myself. Um, I told my best friend a little bit about what happened, um, but I really didn't feel comfortable talking to anyone. So I just kind of kept it bottled up for a long time. And did you ever get a chance to talk about it with him afterwards or just during that first encounter? You know, um, the craziest part about that first encounter is that, you know, later that night when we both got home, he called me at my house as usual and was completely normal. It was as if nothing had happened. And we continued to date um, for quite some time after that because I was so confused um, by what I was experiencing because one minute I would feel pressured and then the next minute he was sweet and telling me that he loved me. And so um, I ended up just kind of having this on and off relationship with him for a while. However, there was this constant cycle of he'd be nice and polite to me for a few days. And then all of a sudden he would show up at my house when my parents weren't home. And it would just be a repeat of what had happened on that first day of him, you know, pressuring me into to doing a multitude of things. And this went on and on for about a, a year into my first year of high school. So uh, it was just, a, I felt, um, I feel like I was brainwashed. I, I just didn't know what I was, what I was going through, what I was experiencing. In one of our previous episodes, we talked with the uh, campus community coordinator of the New York State Coalition Against Sexual Assault about affirmative consent, which is very strong in um, New York State with our newest enough is enough law and how there's a uh, hierarchy of strength in terms of policy and how college Title IX enforcement, at least in New York, is more stringent than for the general public. So I'm wondering, did you actually have conversations about consent? Like, was there anything that, you know, went into the realm of, yes, I want this or no, or was it more kind of talking around the issue? You know, he certainly never asked me if I was okay with certain things, but I know that I would repeatedly say, 
stop it or I don't want to, you know, he was always just pushy and kind of overpowering. And, you know, I'd have, I'd be trying to shove his hand away, but that wouldn't seem to matter. So it was pretty obvious that I was not consenting to the behaviors that he was committing. I mean, there were times that I had tears in my eyes as he was forcing me to do something. So the word no never came out of my mouth, but it was always obvious that I I was not okay with what was happening. Mm-hmm. Would you say that your mind at that age, you knew that you were uncomfortable, but you didn't consider the behavior that he was engaging in as basically a sexual assault. You didn't have the words to name it. That is correct. It took me years before I really thought that was rape, that was sexual abuse. And, you know, I I think I would just say, you know, he's a jerk and he just doesn't listen to me sometimes. And, you know, it was the days that he didn't force me to do things. I would think, oh, maybe he realizes he loves me now and maybe he just doesn't know how he feels about me. So I I gave it every possible name and justification that I could find in my (laughs) naive head. Tell us about how that impacted your engagement or involvement in relationships until you reached 20, until you, you got to that relationship in college. Were you reluctant to have further relationships? Were you using school as a way to sublimate those feelings? How, how did you deal with this confusion around the first relationship? You know, um, I think the exact opposite happened. I think I was constantly seeking love. And so once he stopped bothering me, I was still very open to dating other people um, because I was always just trying to find someone that would treat me with respect and give me the love and space that I felt I deserved. So it wasn't that I was reluctant to enter relationships. I was almost searching for more relationships. And I think I derived a sense of um, importance out of relationships, uh, about having connection with a, a male, a boy in my life. So I, I did end up, ended up dating. Um, and I had, for the most part, pretty okay relationships. Uh, I definitely didn't tolerate a lot um, after that first one. But I, I had a, a nice boyfriend uh, to close out my high school experience. So I I was able to kind of see both sides of it. And I wasn't too jaded yet, which is probably what allowed me to go into college and, and kind of have an open mind and an open heart towards a relationship too. And what was your family life like? Did you have good relationships with the males in your life? Did you have brothers? Or was your father present? Yeah, I am the oldest of three girls. And um, my father wasn't really that involved with us growing up. You know, my father has always had this old school traditional view of his role as a man, as a husband and as a father, and that was to provide for us financially. So he worked a lot growing up and he was never really that good at being a parent, definitely not to three um, growing teenage girls. So I, I didn't have the best relationship with him. I, I, to be honest, I kind of hated him when I was a teenager Um, so I, and I really didn't have too many positive male role models at all. My mother was a stay at home mom and she was wonderful, but she also never talked to us about, um, growing and and life issues and the things that we might have to look out for. So I, I never had a super close relationship with them when it came to sharing deep feelings. And I felt like a lot of times, um, my parents kind of took this this punishment approach to to most of the things I was going through. And so I always felt like somehow anytime I opened up to them at any point, it was somehow my fault or I would get in trouble. Which sounds very typical of many parents of that generation and how they parented, but also in how they interacted and communicated with one another. Would you say that was the case with their relationship as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I look back at so many of the Um, the incidents that should have been kind of warning signs to them or maybe a cry for help from me. You know, for example, um, there was one night where my ex and his friends egged the house and somehow I got uh, punished because the boys wouldn't have had the address if I didn't give them our address. And so it was just like, um, I don't know, 
it was, it was never like a loving, like, do you need help? And, you know, I was suffering academically and I was depressed and I had eating disorders and there were just so many things that should have been major red flags to them. But instead it was just kind of a, you know, get over it. What's your problem? You know, why are you acting this way? Are you seeking attention? Somehow I was always doing something wrong. Was there anybody in your life growing up at school or in the community activities that you were engaged in who was able to take on more of a mentorship role and help guide you through those challenges? No, not not any adult. Uh, in retrospect, my best friend was pretty amazing for a girl her age. She was always very mature and she provided me with a lot of guidance and support and so I'm really grateful for, to her for that. And, you know, she would say things like, you know, if you do this again, I'm going to talk to your parents. I'm concerned about you. So she really kind of kept me um, accountable to a, a certain level of personal behavior. But as far as adults, no one ever reached out. And, you know, teachers definitely noticed that I was struggling. I had one teacher once that asked me, you know, is everything OK? And of course, I said, oh, I'm fine. But I'll never forget that he asked, um, but nobody else really ever did. And even my school nurse, I used to cry in her, her office almost every day. And I had, you know, gashes on my arms that I would say happened while washing the dishes. And nobody ever really asked me if I needed anything or tried to refer me to therapy or, or anyone. Yeah, that's unfortunately a common experience for so many young people. Um, mm -hmm. you, you mentioned you know, eating disorders, you mentioned bullying, you mentioned depression, and yet nobody at school is actually intervening with any opportunity to help address any of these issues. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing it had a, took a toll on your academics. It did. I was always a really good student. And in high school, I just didn't focus on my grades. I was more worried about what I looked like and what people thought of me, you know, with every passing minute of the school day than I was about getting involved or focusing on my, my classwork. And I went to a very small school. And so, you know, my, my abusive ex-boyfriend spread rumors about me. And so the whole school, I just, I had a target on my back. My name was scratched on the bathroom walls. And um, it was just very, very difficult. When you went off to college, was that far away from home? It was two hours away. And it was a school that I knew nobody from my high school was going to. So I was really hopeful that it was going to be a second chance for me. Uh, you know, a clean slate. Nobody knew my name. Nobody had ever heard any rumors about me. So I was, you know, very, um, I was resilient. And I was really hoping that going somewhere else and getting out of my small town might be the big break that I needed to live a normal life and, and fit in and, and uh, meet the right people for once. And how was college for you? At what point did you meet this next boyfriend that had such a pivotal role in your life? Yeah. So my first year of college was, um, quite normal. Uh, I, you know, had a casual dating relationship with a guy in my dorm building and he was very sweet. But once the summer ended and I moved back home, um, that's when I met my abusive boyfriend. We worked together, uh, at a, a restaurant uh, as a summer job. And when I first met him, you know, I almost had this little, mental checklist of healthy behaviors and what to look for and what not to look for. And he checked all those boxes. You know, he was friendly and personable and the people we worked with were kind of supportive of this relationship that we were building. And he respected me and he had a difficult past. So we really deeply bonded um, in that sense. And we almost both acted like we felt like we had met for a reason. So I had no indication that um, that anything was going to be anything other than wonderful with, with this man. Um, so it was great in the beginning. And I, you know, that's like the beginning of most abusive relationships. The beginning is great. Was there something that made it turn the tide? It kind of just happened gradually. You know, we, we spent the summer hanging out and I had no concerns. And then all of a sudden out of the blue one day, he just got upset at really nothing, uh, was just in a bad mood, started yelling at me, making accusations, 
you know, which he then later said he was just afraid he's going to lose me and things have been so great. And he's so sorry that he responded that way. But from that moment on, I was definitely walking on eggshells and just kind of gradually over time, there were just these little subtle warning signs where he'd want me to spend a lot of my time with him, or he was, you know, showing up at work and waiting for me to get out and isolating me from my friends and my family and kind of, um, just always ready to, to be upset about something, usually over nothing. And so it just kind of built up over time. So it seems like that very typical pattern for young people who are in college or about to start college, that when they're in a relationship, the domestic violence actually escalates in their relationship when they're seeking independence or seeking an education. Was that something that he felt threatened by? I think so. Um, He didn't outwardly express that, but he didn't like me studying and he didn't like me being in school. You know, part of it was because it, it took my time away from him. But I can remember him constantly distracting me and, you know, asking how much longer are you going to be studying? And I thought we were going to spend time today together and I've missed you and, you know, you don't care how I feel. And so he would pull me away from my studies. Sometimes he would convince me to skip classes. And he actually had followed me out to college. He managed to sneak into my dorm building and somehow stay there with me for the entire school year. So it was constant stress and distraction uh, with him always being by my side at college. And it definitely took its toll on my grades and even on my work performance. You know, I still had part-time jobs waitressing and I was constantly running late to work. And so he definitely, um, he wanted my life to revolve around him. And that was at the sacrifice of my own well-being and my own goals. What were some of the forms in which his abuse took place? Was it emotional, psychological, physical, financial? It was definitely a combination of everything. Um, He was constantly emotionally and psychologically abusive. I always felt like I was somehow going crazy, like I'd done something wrong. You know, I was always manipulated, Uh, definite verbal abuse, financial abuse, yes, Um, Not so much that he would control money or withhold money. It was more that he was using me for my resources. And a lot of times he couldn't hold a job. So that would in turn end up me spending all of my hard-earned money on his needs and what he wanted that day. So there was definitely financial abuse. Uh, And then as far as the physical abuse, you know, I, I would tell myself over and over again, Uh, well, he's never hit me, so this can't be abuse or it can't be that bad. And if he ever hits me, then I'll leave. But there were so many little warning signs. So he never actually punched me, but he would restrain me. He would grab me by my arm. He would pull me. He wouldn't let me leave a room. He would drive erratically and and make me feel very fearful. So there was definitely a lot of physical um, abuse and physical aggression in my relationship, even though I never saw it that way because I was never actually punched in the face. At what point did law enforcement get involved? Well, they got involved a handful of times because... Very often we'd be arguing somewhere and a passerby would call the police. Um, For Eventually he he caused me to drop out of college and we were homeless for a while. So we had a lot of encounters while we were sleeping in my car. And then eventually we saved up a little bit of money and we got an apartment. And behind closed doors, uh, his rage and his um, violent outbursts were escalating by the day. And I started to feel extremely fearful for my safety. So for example, um, he would get really angry and throw objects in the apartment. There was one night that I came home 15 minutes late from work and he punched the glass of the front door into my face. And I remember making the very um, fearful decision to try to break up with him. And I sat him down and I had this conversation with him that I'd given him several chances and that I was worried and that I was afraid for my safety around him. And I said that we had to break up. And remarkably, he said, 
okay. And he just kind of stormed out and he left me alone. But then two weeks later, he showed up at my apartment intoxicated and he barged his way in and he severely attacked me and uh, he ended up strangling me. And that was the night that the police finally arrested him and that I was finally able to escape through the help of the court system and restraining orders. And he was, he was charged with assault and battery. So that was kind of how it all culminated. And that's, that's really where it all ended for us. What role did your parents and family have when you dropped out of college? You know, kind of going back to the same experience I had as a teenager, when I started dating my abuser in college, my parents didn't like him and they definitely thought he was a loser. But somehow in like, I think my dad's eyes, that meant that I was a loser too, because I'm choosing to date this guy. So instead of trying to help me and trying to convince me to stay away from him, um, my parents really kind of rejected me. And at one point my dad said, you know, don't come to me for help. Don't come around here. Um, he just didn't agree with my choices. And so he pushed me away. And when I told him that I had, I wasn't going to return to college, uh, that was like the final straw for him. And he basically said, you know, get out, don't talk to me, don't come here for anything. So I didn't have any support uh, at that time. And that's really why my abuser and I tried to find that apartment and just kind of figure out what to do as the winter was coming. And, you know, because I didn't have anything else to fall back on. My abuser was the only person in my life. You know, he was the most supportive person in my life, as crazy as that sounds, but he's he's all I had. So it sounded like his isolation tactic actually worked in not just in an emotional way, but physically um, keeping your family and support network away from you and rejecting you. It definitely did. And, you know, from the outside looking in now, you almost wonder how intentional it was too, because, you know, he would do things like, I would say, you know, my parents don't want you coming in the house. I'm just going to run in for a quick second, grab some things out of my old bedroom, but he would then follow me in. So it's almost like he was trying to anger them and, um, you know, create a larger rift between us when he could have just waited five minutes in the car. So you're so right. It's definitely a tactic that, that worked, unfortunately. And so what happened once you had the police involved and they arrested him? What happened with the court case? So it happened the day before uh, Christmas Eve, um, which was pretty devastating, but it also worked to my advantage because he was held through the holiday because the courts were, were closed. So I had an emergency restraining order. He was you know, locked up that night and he was in jail for the next, whatever it was, two to three days. And then the morning after Christmas, that's when I went back into court, got a a permanent restraining order and kind of just left the case in the court's hands. He was charged with um, assault and battery, resisting arrest, disturbing the peace, destruction of property because he destroyed the apartment. And As sad as it is to say, uh, the courts ended up dropping almost everything. The only thing he ended up being charged with was resisting arrest because a police officer could easily testify to that. And this was over 10 years ago now. So victims really didn't play much of a role in the court process back then. You know, nowadays there's this whole, you know, victim bill of rights and victims are part of the court process and they have a say in what happens with the case. And nobody really ever reached out to me. I got a letter in the mail once the case was closed out and it was kind of too late. And I really wish I would have been part of that whole process. You know, they didn't take photos back then. People didn't have cell phones with cameras. So, you know, all of the damage in the house and, and just my testimony as to him attacking me, none of that came into play. So unfortunately he was never held accountable and he just got some probation time out of it. Did you ever try to reach out to the DA's office? You know, I got one letter in the mail shortly after the the charges were filed, and it was telling me that there was a pretrial date, and I didn't really know what that meant. So I called the DA's office, and I said, should I come in for this? And, and they said, oh, no, you don't need to come in. That's just letting you know that there's going to be a date with the case. I said, well, should I come in? He says, oh, you don't have to. And I said, okay, do I need to come to any dates? No, you don't. 
which is true, but they didn't inform me of the actual impact that it would make if I went. So I, I ended up moving. I never got anything else in the mail. I never get a phone call from anyone. And, and that was kind of it. I just kind of took that phone call at face value and thought they didn't need me. So basically the case was dismissed. Yes. And what happened after that? Were you concerned for your safety that your boyfriend at the time might come after you for putting him through that in his eyes, putting him through that process? You know, I felt safe enough for the most part. I did have a restraining order on him for the next four years, so I consistently renewed it. And I had moved to an apart- a different apartment, and I was meticulous about making sure that my address wasn't anywhere, and I was very um, careful about being seen or, or being seen walking home. And so I, I really felt like he wouldn't know where to find me. Back then, you know, we did have some social media, so he had tried to send me a few messages as always denying things, apologizing. And then it just kind of uh, quieted down. And sadly, through the grapevine, I heard that he had already moved on to someone else and that um, he allegedly he had attacked them already. So, you know, he he kind of has just been hopping from couch to couch ever since me. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that I'm at the top of his list anymore. Wow, that sounds terrible. I know that there's a lot of um, a lot of what we post in our social media for the podcast has to do with bringing attention to the lack of accountability in these domestic violence and sexual assault cases and the connection between these cases and more public uh, displays of violence like mass shootings, um, Mm -hmm. like, you know, Mercy Hospital, you heard recently it was a domestic violence Mm -hmm related incident that caused the shootings, but the way the press covered it, you would never have known. You have to, you know, dig for that. Right. So what you say I think is very important for people to be aware of is that when one individual who's hurt another isn't held accountable, that person has the opportunity to do it again and again to so many other people. Oh, absolutely. And you know, it was the night that I got that temporary restraining order right after he had attacked me. When I was at the police station, the officer said to me, are you aware that he has a restraining order on him by somebody else right now too? And I had no idea, you know, and it's almost like you wonder if this type of stuff should be made public in some way, or we can look up somebody's name and, you know, it's, it's awful. You know, there's no way that you can prevent this stuff from happening. Well, there are people who actually believe that domestic violence offenders should have some sort of registry. Um, oh, I agree. Mm-hmm. So that you can look them up and decide whether you, you know, like sex offenders, decide right. whether or not you want to date them to be warned in advance. And then especially if there's a pattern of things being dropped you know, that those things might not be taken as seriously, but at least you have the opportunity to decide for yourself what kind of weight to give to it. Right. And I, you know, I think that things are improving. I think, I think the courts are trying to hold people accountable more. They're, you know, they're not as, as particular about the type of evidence that you can use and you don't always need the victim there. And even like, since my incident, strangulation is now, you know, a felony offense, whereas, for me, it, it wasn't even part of the the charges. It was just assault and battery. Um, so I, you know, I think people, I think there's progress being made, but yeah, the accountability will it's it will always be lacking. I mean, most offenders don't even ever make it into the criminal justice system at all. How did you change from this experience? You talk about in your uh, writings and and your speaking that when you left the court that day, it was a big light switch for you. Yeah, it really was. And I don't know what blessed me with the experience I had versus others, because I I know that so many victims, it it takes them a while before they transition into that survivor mindset and, and being strong and not struggling. But for me, when I left the courthouse that day, I was so profoundly moved by the fact that, um, I walked out of there alone I sat in my car alone, and if I wanted to just take a drive, I wouldn't get yelled at or reprimanded, and I felt so just free, and uh, it was just an amazing feeling because I hadn't felt that in so long, and 
I really reflected on everything I had thrown away, my career, my education, which really bothered me, my family, my friends, my goals. And then it kind of hit me that I had been self-sacrificing who I was and my life and, and the chance to engage in opportunities ever since I was 14, since that first incident with that first boyfriend. And I think I was so fed up that I just wanted to make up for lost time and kind of hit the ground running. And I thought, you know, if I, if I continue to struggle, they all continue to win. And I was like, I'm not going to let that happen. And something in me just sparked where I thought, if he ever sees my name or, or, you know, sees my face somewhere, it better be because I'm doing amazing things. And I just, that was it. Something just switched to me and I changed and I let go and I stopped caring about what people thought or satisfying and pleasing other people. And I just started focusing on me. And, you know, that really began, it, it turned into this process of healing, rebuilding, saving money, putting the pieces back together. I started volunteering at a women's shelter and, you know, I've just been growing ever since. So it was life-changing. What role did your family and friends play after that when he was out of the picture? Did they start getting more engaged with you? Did they reconnect? You know, not surprisingly, we have never really talked about any of it. And being that it was the holiday season, um, I ended up connecting with my sister back at the time. And so I, I was around family and I kind of just slowly started coming back by the house, visiting my mom, who you know, I wasn't as uncomfortable around as my dad. And over time, we just kind of rebuilt that relationship. And you know, in a weird twist, uh, my mom ended up getting sick. And so that kind of brought us all closer together again. But we've never really talked about what I went through or, you know, there's never been any apologies or anything like that. Um, but I, you know, forgive and forget. I, I really believe that my parents, like so many people, just were kind of ignorant about the issues and really just not sure what to even do, you know. And unfortunately, I can't, you know, I can't hold anything against them for that. So the past is the past. And that's why I try to do what I do today, just educate and, and help other people feel like they can actually do something when they see these things. Do you wish that you could be able to talk to them more about these issues, since given that you're basically spending your life dedicated to, to speaking out about these issues and advocating for justice around these issues? I, you know, I've tried to every once in a while. I'll kind of, you know, drop a little line under my breath about like when my dad kicked me out when I needed him the most. Um, and we just kind of we just don't talk about it. I don't know. I, I don't think that I would make any progress. Even if my dad in his head um, knows and recognizes what he should have done, I just don't think we'll ever actually have that conversation. And unfortunately, uh, my mother has since passed. Um, so that, that won't happen. But, you know, I, in her, her ill hours, I, I did talk to her a lot about life and, you know, things that had happened to me and, you know, I, I certainly don't hold any grudges. And the crazy part of, I think of all of this is my dad uh, is an attorney. So he's very versed in domestic violence and sexual assault. And he used to prosecute these cases. So I do think that he is aware of the issues, but perhaps it's like they say, when it's someone close to you, you just, you don't really know what to do. You know, it's almost like it's easier to help a stranger. It's easier to talk about it when you're far removed from the issue. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. Wow. So as a survivor myself, I have to say that's a very disturbing revelation because one of the things that I struggle with, I know, is the level to which people who work in direct service, whether it's in law enforcement or in the mental health side, you know, to which they actually are addressing this, the sort of systemic reasons for why these things happen and to look within their own biases, et cetera, and how they might navigate these experiences in their personal lives. So I've, I've been very, that's something that I've been very challenged in, um, mm. not, not knowing how to reconcile, you know, those differences and hearing that, that example you gave with your father kind of reinforces the concern. Yeah. And, you know, and maybe it was just my dad and his style, but I, I really think that even in those moments, he kind of saw it as, well, 
you know, you brought this on yourself. You're the one choosing to date these people. You're the one putting yourself in these situations. So I don't know. You've written a lot and talked a lot about visioning and manifesting um, and what how you described your experience leaving the courthouse in a way seemed almost like a divine experience. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering whether you've actually also thought about the ways in which our systems and structures culturally and media and, and, and your own personal family structure may have played a role in creating opportunities for women in general to make themselves vulnerable to being victims, but also make men and boys grow up to be uh, in relationships and defining themselves in ways in which they use dominance and power to assert their masculinity and their status. Have you thought about that at all? Absolutely. Um, I ended up going back to school and studying the justice system. And, you know, one of the things that always bothered me was just reading our case law and even seeing that up until, you know, the late 70s, a man was still protected from, you know, rape against his wife. So it absolutely is. It's in our law books. It's in our institutions. It's in our culture. Um, You know, I think the media, like you said, plays a huge role, definitely, in just the objectification of women and, and how boys see women and not understanding that there's consent and boundaries and how you're supposed to treat someone. So I think I think a major shift needs to happen. But I think if we were going to focus on anything, it's shifting culture, it's shifting attitudes and behaviors, because that's what then shapes our, our laws and our policies and practices. So I think having conversations like this, where we talk about right from wrong, you know, respect, uh, healthy versus unhealthy and, and teaching people young, that's how we're going to prevent a lot of this stuff. Because otherwise we are still suffering from just the fallout of years and years and centuries and a history of, you know, oppression uh, against women and violence against women. It's everywhere. So one thing that I noted from looking at your website and in your bio is that I didn't see the word feminism or sexism anywhere? And and I'm wondering, would you consider yourself a feminist? I, I do. Yeah, I do consider myself a feminist because I consider myself an advocate for women's rights and women's equal rights. I think um, just from a personal standpoint, I think people have just given feminism such a such a stereotype and such a, a stigma that I just stay away from it. And I, I'd rather say women's empowerment, women's equality, women's rights, human rights, um, social justice, because I think that's, you know, at the heart of all of it. So I, I am a feminist. Absolutely. It brings me to also the the common critique that people have when words like empowerment are used outside of a context of examining and challenging systemic structures, that there's white privilege involved. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what role do you think your race has played in your life to actually help you overcome a lot of these challenges that maybe would have not been possible for women of color? You know, um, I think it's really hard for me to even speak to that just because I don't know what it's like to be a woman of color. As someone who is educated and informed on, you know, racial inequities, I know that there are disparities for persons of color in, in all ways you know, for me, I really was self-reliant and I believe that anybody who is self-reliant and determined can carve out a successful life and path for them. But I'm sure that in a lot of different sectors and in the professional sphere, you know, if I were a woman of color, I'm sure I would face different adversities than, um, you know, being a woman who's white. And so I, I can't fully speak to it, but I, I, certainly wouldn't, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking to think that um, a person of color would not have the same opportunities. So I think it really goes down to, um, like I said, just that sense of self-empowerment, self-reliance, determination and drive and, you know, being willing to hit the pavement running and be resilient and, and just make it happen for yourself sometimes. We have a hashtag called Upstander Tips that highlights the ways in which friends and family and community can support survivors. Mm -hmm. And I know that we can kind of discuss that with your family. But for our listeners, if you had the ability to sort of wave a magic wand, what would you give as Upstander Tips 
to your friends and family um, and how they could have acted differently to be supportive and part of your journey in a positive way? I think it's just not being um, afraid to speak up, you know, and everybody has, I mean, to be honest, when it comes to intervening and offering help to someone, it really comes down to our, our own personal confrontation styles. You know, some people are very bold and outspoken and they'll go right up and say, what do you need? Is everything going on? I don't think that you're okay. And some people are much more shy but I think it's just a matter of no matter who you are and no matter how uncomfortable it is, you have to try to find some way to offer help, whether it's very casually saying, are you all right? Or enlisting the help of somebody else who's more outspoken, you know, uh, hey, you're friends with Ashley. Can you ask her if she's all right? I think the problem is that so many of us remain silent and we feel like it's not our, our place to speak in, to speak up or to step in. But we have to we have to be in a place where we don't tolerate this issue to the point where we won't allow ourselves to stay silent. We need to get angry when we see this stuff and be willing to put ourselves out there and, and to speak up. And I think if I can just add maybe one personal tip, you know, when it comes to, let's say it's your friend, that's the victim. What a lot of people tend to do is they start badgering the abuser. You know, I don't like the way he does this or she does this. I don't like the way they're treating you. You shouldn't let them do this. But sometimes the most effective thing you can do is point out how the person has changed. So saying things like, you know, you used to play music all the time. And, you know, when was the last time you played music? And, you know, you, you're not in school anymore. And, you know, aren't you upset that, you know, you don't have these things going on? So kind of really making the person self-reflect and realize what they're sacrificing. Sometimes that can be really eye-opening and really a really powerful moment for a person to realize how much they have changed because of their relationship. So that's just one way to approach it. The second you start talking about the abuser, a victim is going to defend them. It's just our our fallback. You know, that's what we do. We defend it. We justify it. We hide it. Um, So sometimes having that straightforward conversation with the person and the impact on them can sometimes be the most powerful way to reach someone. I think that sounds very consistent with what Evan Stark's theory of coercive control as a gendered liberty crime is, um, which is that Mm -hmm. you don't, Don't look at domestic violence as what is done to a person, but what one keeps a person from doing for herself. And to the extent that you were couching it as a human rights issue, it is a human rights issue if you're not able to live your best life, if you're not able to go to school and be free to have relationships with your parents or friends or have a job without feeling guilty or threatened or isolated as a result. Right. And even just um, health and safety and well-being. I mean, I was extremely malnourished by the time I I left my abuser. I must have weighed something like 95 pounds and, you know, my health had suffered and I I wasn't eating well. And I, you know, he got me involved in the wrong people and sometimes doing the wrong things and drinking more. And so it it definitely took its toll on me in all ways. Um, So absolutely. When he was out of the picture after the court case ended, you had this sort of shift in your mind. And were there any bumps along the way? Like it sounded like you just made a decision. I'm going to focus on me and prioritize me and heal me. But what else may have gotten in the way of you having success effectively? You know, I think think probably the biggest thing that I had to overcome was I definitely was very bitter for a while. And as much as I was focused on me, that also meant I was shutting people out. You know, I, I didn't seek relationships. It took me a long time before I was ready for one. Um, I didn't want to have help from people. So I almost became very reclusive, even though I was building and, and, you know, growing and working towards my goals. Um, I really just, kind of had a a bitter outlook on people and and the world at the same time. So, you know, I think I wasn't, I wasn't willing to accept help and, uh, that might've been a good thing for me. So if anything, those were the little roadblocks I faced, just kind of trying to do it all on my own, um, for so long, you know, and it was a long process. I had to save up money and figure it all out and figure out how I was going to get back to school. It took me years and figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And, uh, you know, I totally changed degrees. I was once studying nursing and then I decided to study criminal justice. So I was just a long uphill battle and I, I just had to 
rely on this faith that it would all work out as long as I kept moving forward. And so tell our listeners where you are now. What are some of the accomplishments that you'd like to highlight? Sure. You know, one of the ways that I really healed was by getting involved in my community. I mentioned that I started volunteering at a women's shelter and I just derived a a very strong sense of purpose out of that. And I also, that's what kind of allowed me to become social again. And so I ended up getting involved in tons of like women's empowerment groups and different committees that served women's issues. And within a matter of a few years, I was serving on committees and boards of directors. And I even launched my own young women's leadership development program with our local YWCA. I very proudly became uh, Miss New Bedford, which was a local pageant title in my community. But I dedicated my year to domestic violence awareness. I visited schools. I was sharing my story. And by winning, I earned scholarship money to go back to college. And eventually, I went back to school, studied criminal justice, and amazingly graduated as valedictorian of my class. And I ended up working for several years in victim services, so at our district attorney's office, uh, on a college campus, at a community agency. And I've just been, I've been entrenched in this whole line of work ever since. And now I'm fully self-employed as a speaker and a trainer and an educator. And I really focus on the youth market because I know that there's so many young people out there Uh, girls and boys that are living the same life that I did and facing the same challenges that I did. And I believe education is the best way that we can make a a dent in this. So this is what I do full time now. I I travel and I speak and I offer workshops and trainings and I'm just trying to make a difference one community at a time. Can you share with us some of the successes that you've seen from your work? Absolutely. You know, I, I feel blessed that on a almost daily basis, I have people that reach out to me and it's everything from, I speak at a school and some of the students come up at the end and they disclose and then they end up going to counseling and seeking help. Or I write a blog post and someone reaches out and says, this was my story. I felt alone. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, over the years, I've just been able to bring so many people to this level of consciousness about what they've experienced to where they can finally start moving forward and making progress and, you know, kind of letting go of what they're, they're experiencing and moving forward towards their own goals. Naturally, when I worked in the criminal justice justice system, I was working, you know, hand in hand with victims and survivors. But now I really get to make change on a, on a much larger level of having people individually realize what they're experiencing and, and start seeking help. And I think more than anything, finding a, a sense of hope again, because when you're in these situations, hopelessness is a very real thing and it can be a very damaging thing. So I think just my ability to give people a sense of hope is is one of the most amazing successes that I see on a pretty regular basis. Thank you so much, Ashley, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for all you do and for this podcast. And I think uh, you're doing amazing work and it's going to make a huge difference. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. Today's show is sponsored by the Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find them online at feministcoffeehour.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.